Hello, this is Millie Long. Welcome to IBD Drive Time. I'm so excited to introduce our topic and guests today. I think it's going to be a highly valuable 20 minutes as we're going to do our first of a three-part series on the best of ECHO. So we're bringing the best abstracts and science uh, from the ECHO meeting um, to you all. And it's gonna be interpreted today by two guests. I have Dr. Sarah Horst, who is Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Telehealth at Vanderbilt. And then I have my co-host as a guest today, Dr. Ray Cross, who is Professor of Medicine and Director of the IBD Center at University of Maryland. And just as a plug for this podcast, I'd like to announce that finally, we are now available on Apple and Spotify. You can search for us under the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And so with that, Sarah, welcome. We're so pleased to have you as part of IBD Drive Time. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to learn from you. I didn't get a chance to go to ECHO this year. So A, I'm jealous, but B, uh, this is such a wonderful way for me to learn the best abstracts and science out of ECHO. So the questions I have for you today center around some abstracts uh, dealing with small molecules that are currently approved. And so I'd love to start with our S1P inhibitor, Ozanamod, because there was an abstract you selected that helps us to better understand potentially how to, how to utilize this drug. Yeah, so this, I thought this was a really interesting abstract and, you know, ECHO was a fantastic meeting, so it was really uh, fun to be there. But in particular, this study was an open label extension study of ozanamod use in patients who had actually non-responded at week 10. So we're sort of trying to look at and see what happens to people if we keep them on drug a little bit longer. So it was about 220 patients were included and about half of them were bio-experienced. And the, the study did divide the groups into bio-naive and bio-experienced when they looked at outcomes. And when they looked at clinical symptom response, about 50% of patients in both groups, so both bio-naive and bio-experienced, experienced clinical response with an additional five weeks of ozanamod. And then by week 10, so about 20 weeks on drug total, that clinical response rate went up to about 60%. And there was really no difference between bio-naive and bio-experience between the outcomes. And then in those who stayed on longer-term drug, uh, they looked at sort of these longer outcomes last, observed, carried forward data, which showed a clinical remission about 20 to 30% rate, and then endoscopic improvement at about 35 40%. Obviously, that goes down when they look at the non-responder imputation analysis. So to me, this is really important. This shows that we, we might be able to capture some people if we keep patients on ozanamod for an additional five to 10 weeks, and really probably five weeks is kind of the, you know, the big bang for your buck. And it really didn't matter whether they were bio-naive or bio-experienced. So I think this is pretty important. No, that's really interesting. The recently, I guess probably last year, and I think it was at UEG, there was some data on upadacitinib, a JAK inhibitor, um, that also showed something similar, like kind of by extending that induction time, we actually were able to, they're actually able to recapture or, or, or capture, you know, a significant proportion that then ultimately went on to do well. So it sounds that way with Ozanamod, that that extra five weeks may help us, you know, Obviously, you don't want to have our patients waiting forever, you know, for a response. And so was there any like glimpse of who those people were that did better with the five week extension? You know, not with the analysis they did. I mean, I, I sort of assumed that maybe patients with bio experience might do a little less well and we maybe a little bit, but not really. I mean, in the long term data, there was really no difference between any of their outcomes. So I think that's a really important point. I'm not sure that we can necessarily tell who's going to do better or not. And 
you know, unfortunately for some people, it might be a little bit longer. I think the expectation managing is really important. So mm -hmm. if you're going to do this, you know, maybe just a an additional five weeks, we're not going to go further to, to help patients understand, you know, how long we can really say before failure. So they didn't present this uh, at the meeting, but I think it was presented at UEG, which I attended virtually. I think it was a UEG, but they, they showed something very interesting. Obviously, very few, if any of these patients are going to have a rectal bleeding score of zero at baseline when they're enrolled in the study. But at week 10, when they were assessing response, about 20% of the patients that went into the open label had a rectal bleeding score of zero. So I wonder as clinicians, if that significant reduction in rectal bleeding may be a sign that this is going to be a delayed responder. Now, they didn't break the data down like that, but I think it would be an interesting analysis as to whether that may be a signal that an extra five weeks is worth it. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, those are certainly the people who you might hang on longer, because if someone had really had no response and rectal bleeding, I'm probably not going to extend them by five weeks. But then at least you feel you've made some progress in something that is clearly inflammatory, you know, the bleeding issue. So it's interesting. Yeah, it'll be nice if they break out the characteristics for us. But I think I hadn't thought about this in this way before. I certainly had thought about it with the jacks because I'd seen the data about the extended induction. But I think this is just another way to try to make sure that for the right patient, this could give them a good outcome in the end, extending some of the induction. Well, Sarah, yeah, let I me think, move. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's increasingly, it's not easy to get these medicines approved. So I think that's one of the other things you need to think about when you're kind of going in this, in this treatment process for patients. And it seems like a long time, but you've got a new drug on board. If an extra five weeks is going to get you where you need to go, that might be, it might be worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so let's move on to talk about the JAKs. I think you selected one on upadacitinib and, and one on tofacitinib to discuss. And the upadacitinib one kind of allowed us to focus on some other things of concerns to our patient name, patients, namely fatigue. I know this is sometimes the bane of our patients exist. They feel somewhat better, but they still have this overwhelming fatigue. What did you learn from this particular abstract? Yeah, so I really liked this abstract. I think to me, this is the kind of thing that increasingly we're going to need to be looking at given that we you know, have a lot of options. So I was really excited to see this. So this was looking at secondary outcomes of symptom resolution and fatigue resolution in patients with UC on apatacinib in the induction and maintenance studies. So symptom resolution was no bowel urgency, no abdominal pain, and no other classic symptoms of UC. So this was a pretty hard endpoint. And I think Probably one of the most important things of this study that I took away was looking at the baseline characteristics of the two groups. So in the placebo group, there was like not three, about 300 patients. In the treatment group, there was about 650 patients. So where there's a ton of UC patients. At baseline, 90% of these patients reported abdominal pain scores greater than zero and bowel urgency symptoms. And so I think the presence of abdominal pain in the vast majority of UC patients is really important. That was actually one of the big takeaways that I had from the study, actually, baseline characteristics. So then they looked at their outcomes. And then it was resolution of all of those symptoms I just talked about and no fatigue. So this is a really quite rigorous endpoint. And nobody met it at baseline, as you would expect. By week eight, about 25% of the hepatocinib group met that endpoint, and only 6% of placebo met it. And by week 52, about 25% of the patients in opatacitinib 15 milligram 
group met it, and then about 36% of the 30 milligram glucatecinib group met that endpoint, compared to about 12% of patients in placebo. So this is real world outcomes. These are things our patients care about, especially the fatigue. I mean, it is important that only 40% of the patients met this really hard endpoint by week 52. So that's something we have to think about as clinicians. And I, I do think in the future when they're looking at this, I'd like to have a little bit more data on just fatigue and even just improvement in fatigue. So I hope they kind of go into that more detail because our patients care about that. We care about it. It's really hard to treat and maybe figure out who's, whose fatigue is going to get better versus not. So those are sort of what I'm hoping to see in the future. But this was, I think this was really important. Great, yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's it's important for our patients, it's important for us. And I think it goes along with my gist about this class of drugs essentially, which is that they're pretty darn effective. And you know, obviously they work fairly quickly and it's nice to know that they alleviate a lot of these symptoms. It'll be interesting to see what symptoms persisted. I bet there's some people who, Actually, you know, the inflammation may be better, but they may have some symptoms that persist. And so I think it's an interesting group to, to look at those that didn't meet this endpoint and how much of that was inflammatory versus not. I mean, at least in my practice, I feel like some of the urgency we see is actually more related to accommodation and scarring from prior inflammation and, and may or may not actually get all the way better, you know, with anti-inflammatory medication. So I think there's a lot we could learn about the flip side too, the people that didn't meet this endpoint. Absolutely. I think it's really like what happens when somebody still has fatigue and, and you've got them in endoscopic remission. What I think digging into that group is going to be really important to help us as clinicians understand it. But I also think it's important to help patients understand, listen, your fatigue could get a lot better by, by us tr using a JAK inhibitor. And, and if we see that differential benefit in one class of drugs over the other, boy, I think that's pretty important for patients. So tell us about the ORCID study, which was tofacitinib versus steroids for inducing remission. So this could be a game changer. We want a drug that works quickly and helps us, you know, from a, to minimize steroids, just given all of the known complications that we see associated with steroid use. What did you learn from this abstract? Yeah, this was a really, really cool exploratory study. So it's a pilot study from India. It looked about 80 patients total who had moderate to severe disease. And they had a total Mayo score of six to nine, so pretty significant with endoscopic disease, and randomized these patients to induction of remission with tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice daily or prednisone with a taper, so one or the other. And they had a really firm primary endpoint, which was a total Mayo score of less than or equal to two with an endoscopic score of zero and a fecal cal less than 100 by week eight. Mm -hmm. And then their secondary endpoints were clinical remission and clinical response. Now, there's no data about prior treatments in either group, so that I think is a limitation. I don't really know what these patients were on beforehand, uh, you know, if they'd been bioexperienced or anything like that. Um, but it was a really positive study for both treatment arms, both prednisone and tofacitinib. Both got better quick, so median time was uh, to symptomatic remission was about 10 days, and the and I think these secondary endpoints are really important here. So the clinical remission by week eight was about 40% in both groups. And clinical response in both groups was 65%. So a lot got better, both got better quickly, really no difference. The primary endpoint, it was really rigorous, but about 16% of the tofacitinib group met that and 7% of the prednisone group met not 
statistically significant. It's a small study, but there was really no safety signals. One patient in each stop, tofacitinib, there was a case of tuberculosis and patients on, a patient on prednisone got um, cystic acne. And there was one zoster case in the tofacitinib group, but it's a little bit of a smaller study. So I think this is great, really important, actually comparing prednisone to uh, you know, a small molecule and really seeing no difference in what we can do for patients as far as clinical response and remission. That's great. Ray, do you think that this might change your practice? Do you think you might try to avoid steroid induction when you're starting a jack, whatever the jack may be? I was just going to pick on Sarah and ask her that. So <laughs> I think, I guess the question, I think the easy answer here is if you have a patient who is sick enough that you're thinking about prescribing prednisone that would otherwise be a good candidate for a jack, by giving a jack, you don't need to give a prednisone bridge. So I think that's an, a no-brainer for this. But then I guess the question for us is in patients that may not be a great long-term candidate for a jack, perhaps a 26-year-old woman who's thinking about conceiving in the next few years, should can we pulse them with a jack, bridge them to a novel biologic or some another small molecule like an S1P and avoid prednisone? And, and I think that's really intriguing. It, it, I haven't done that yet. But I could see that that would be a reasonable approach, particularly for someone who's a little less treatment exposed. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I think we need to we need to learn more, but I think we're certainly understanding that this onset of action with the Jack class is quite good. And hopefully it'll help to minimize some of the complications that we see with with steroids if we can minimize them. In the very least, we should be able to minimize some of the the steroid use. Yeah, I okay. think maybe I think this gives you the, you know the some of the art, you know, reasoning to not always pull out prednisone <laughs> you know yeah, this gives us a little bit of we will always need for it that. but yes but, need but perhaps not um not we may be able to avoid some of it so with that i do want to switch topics here and as a, a reminder to our listeners this podcast is sponsored by the gastroenterology learning network and the advances in ibd meeting and just as a reminder, we have an upcoming in-person regional, May 19th and 20th in Boston, Massachusetts. So if you're in that area, please join us for a day and a half of outstanding IBD learning. So as we shift gears, Ray is going to fill us in on some additional abstracts from ECHO that are centered around the theme of Crohn's disease and individuals with a prior surgery. So Ray, talk to us a little bit about your the first abstract you selected, which had to do with long-term outcomes of kind of surgery versus anti-ITF therapy. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of interest in surgery. And really, I would say putting surgery in a positive light as far as a treatment approach for Crohn's disease. The, the first one I'm going to go over was an oral presentation, OP11. And it was a population-based study using the Danish nationwide cohort. And it looked at patients with ileal Crohn's from 2003 to 2018. They had over 16,000 patients, but they were looking at patients that had surgery, so a classic ileocolic resection or received an anti-TNF within a year of diagnosis. So that was only 4% of the population. And they used a composite outcome, which included uh, Crohn's-related hospitalization, systemic steroid exposure, Crohn's-related surgery, and development of a perianal Crohn's diagnosis. And they adjusted for a number of confounding variables. And the bottom line is when you look at the composite outcome, the, the, the resection group was about 33% less likely 
to encounter this composite outcome. And it was primarily driven by surgery, but even steroids was reduced by about 30% and Crohn's-related hospitalizations by about 20%. Perianal Crohn's, it, it didn't make a difference. And importantly, when you followed these patients out over time, um, only 50% of these patients were on some type of immunosuppressive or biologic treatment five years out. So suggesting that early surgery for patients with ileal Crohn's can be an, an effective option that puts people into a, a long-term remission. That's great. You know, I, I have to admit, I have a few patients like this that got early surgery or frankly, were in the prevent trial and ended up having been on placebo, you know, and so you, and you realize that they've had five years with like, you know, no, nothing. So gosh, wouldn't it be nice to help us to better understand who are those patients that will do well? That's what we need next, right? You know, the ability to predict and understand who, who are those that will have that truly durable remission after earlier resection? I don't I think mean, we're there yet. This from lyric, we, this from lyric too, right? That, yeah. you know, in a, in a randomized controlled trial fashion, that that can be very, it can be a useful alternative. Maybe someone who isn't interested in long-term medical therapy, maybe someone who's going to be going to college or is going to be away, work travel for a period of time where this can buy them time before they start treatment. So now, Sarah and I were shoulder to shoulder listening to many of these abstracts, and there's something inherently biased when you include surgery as an outcome, and the anti-TNF group isn't getting surgery right. It, there's got to be some lead time bias that disadvantages the anti-TNF group. But having said that, even looking at steroids and hospitalizations, there was still a reduction. So I don't think it's just some type of lead time bias. I think there is something real there. And it's probably because there's stricturing disease in the anti-TNF group and you can't overcome that with therapy would be my guess. Yeah, I agree, Ray. I think that I was gonna mention that idea of bias, but they do a good job. I mean, I think that's another important point of this. The people who they chose for surgery did really well. I think understanding who, who we should put on the, on the post-operative, you know, biologic or whatever we're going to use, I still think, you know, I think we'll talk about this, but that's, that's to me, the key is to figure out who's going to need it afterwards and who's going to do the best with surgery up front. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people will. So I think that's a, that's a good. It, well, and your next abstract tried to get at this to some extent. Is that right, Ray? They tried to look at some of these predictive factors. Yeah, well, the next abstract's a little different because it's not looking at just newly diagnosed patients. So the DOP-77 looked at nearly 600 uh, French patients who had a resection between 2013 and 2015, so a little bit more, more modern time frame. But patients had to have three years of follow-up or more to be included. So that got the sample size down to just under 300. And their outcome was durable remission, which they defined as absence of a Rueckert's endoscopic score of I2 or greater and or absence of medical treatment initiation or intensification. And, and that, this paints a much less rosy picture. So um, only 20% of these patients met the criteria with up to 85 months of follow-up. So I'm doing the math, that's about seven years. So very few patients met that criteria 
when you include the endoscopy. And even more telling, I think, is of that 20%, 10% were on medical therapy. So they were on post-operative prophylaxis and they didn't progress on therapy. So you're now looking at only one in 10 patients that's going to have a root care score of I0 or 1 and no initiation of treatment after surgery, which is different. And I think this is a more patients have longer duration of disease. You're getting them later in the disease course. So I think if some of these patients, this isn't their first surgery. So I think the real truth probably lies somewhere in between for these patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fair. But hopefully we'll continue. I mean, that'll be the way of the future, right? Being able to have some sort of valid predictive markers and we're just not. We not keep there. saying that they're not here yet. They're not here yet. Someday. But your last study, I think, was, well, not that the rest aren't important, but I think this one's really important because I deal with this really a lot in my clinical practice, which is, um, you know, obviously I have patients who've cycled through various medicines and they end up undergoing surgery. And I may or may not want to go back to a TNF in terms of post-operative prevention of recurrence. And so the Reprevio trial was actually looking at vetalizumab to prevent post-operative recurrence in Crohn's disease. And what did this show? So this was cool. This was a prospective randomized control trial. It was small, only 80 patients, but they were looking at the ability of vetalizumab to prevent post-operative recurrence compared to placebo. And these patients were higher risk. So they either were active smokers, um, they had one or more prior resection surgery for perforating complication, or they included prior anti-TNF use as a high risk uh, subset. And vetalizumab or placebo was started within a month. Now, there was no loading. They just went immediately to maintenance. And the primary outcome here was endoscopic recurrence at six months, not clinical recurrence. And then they looked at a number of other secondary endpoints, the, the severity of recurrence and clinical recurrence and so forth. So there's a couple um, things that take to look at here. First of all, there's a fairly high rate of smokers, about a quarter to a third of the population were smokers. And about a third, this was their second, third, or later resection. About a third had surgery for perforating disease and prior exposure to anti-TNF was about 50% of the population. So darn, these are sick patients. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, they are. And so if you really look at the high-risk recurrences, the ones we really care about, right? So this is going to be the 2Bs and the 3s. Only 23% of the vetalizumab-treated patients achieved that endpoint, that negative outcome, compared to 60% of the placebo. So it's really quite striking. And just over 40% of these patients had an endoscopic score of I0. And for the ones, they also looked at each grade of recurrence, and there were three in the vetalizumab-treated group that, received, that had a I-4, but importantly, two of those patients were lost to follow-up, and they were presumed to be I-4, so it was really only one actually got to endoscopy and actually hit that endpoint. So, you know, I think my sense is that probably any biologic therapy and maybe in the future, small molecules, if they're started after surgery would be effective. But, you know, I think in absence of the best available data, if you have a clinical trial, this should guide 
our postdoc management, right? So the best evidence now is with an anti-TNF and an anti-integrin vetalizumab in preventing recurrence. So I think the provocative question for maybe for you and Sarah is based on this study, you know, in a patient who's been exposed to an anti-TNF before surgery, should we be using vetalizumab first line or should we continue an anti-TNF? How are we going to sort through that? Yeah, I think for me, it would depend on when the TNF was started. You know, if somebody already has complications of bad inflamed stenosis, already has, you know, a fistula, whatever it may be, and you start the TNF, try, but they ultimately go to surgery, you know, within that six month window or what have you, that's a person I would continue on the TNF. But I think for someone who has truly mechanistically failed where inflammation progressed and worsened all on, you know, the prior TNF, I think in those patients, I think these data are robust and I think vetalizumab would be a good option. And I think the idea of kind of, it's different when it's early, it's different in prevention, I think. You know, vetalizumab is not my go-to drug for small bowel Crohn's disease in most instances. And so I think these, these data made me think that this drug probably is good when it's early. It's just a matter of timing uh, of some of that. I don't, I don't know, Sarah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think what you said is very reasonable. I also think about the patient as a whole, like their extra intestinal, intestinal manifestations and have perianal disease, all that would probably factor in. I think one important point about this study, and we also saw it was pre with PREVENT really, was that there was no difference in clinical symptoms in this group. Both of them had 20%. So they were having endoscopic recurrence way early and they, they weren't experiencing anything different. So it, to me, it's almost like just start something in this really high risk group, you know, um, you, and you got to do it early. I feel like that's kind of the key in this really high risk patient population. You've got it. Absolutely. This was six month follow-up, endoscopic follow-up. You can't yeah, delay this. Well, and that actually, when Ray presented the inclusion of who was included in the study, it made me kind of take pause thinking, gosh, with clinical equipoise, could I really give one of these patients placebo? I mean, just because they're so, they're sick, multiple failed mechanisms. You know, it, I think we, we would all be lying if we didn't say that the biggest intervention you could do for this group, if they're 30% smokers, is get them to quit smoking, right? Because that astoundingly increased rates of postoperative recurrence, much more so than any drug can. Provide. You know, Millie, another interesting thing it see, and Sarah, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that we saw an abstract somewhere where, where they talk about how the percentage of patients that start postoperative prophylaxis, and it's way, way higher in the U.S. than it is in Europe. And you know, these patients were, we would all agree, are super high risk, right? So someone who's already had a prior surgery or two surgeries or more, you know, that to me that's a no-brainer, but the patient who, you know, has had disease for eight years and has a 10 centimeter resection, you know, does that patient need to be on a post-op biologic or can you monitor that patient to look for recurrence? And as I've gotten older, I'm actually less likely to use treatment, uh, particularly now that we have more therapies available and just do that three-month calprotectin and do the scope at six months and base treatment based on what I see. But I'm not, again, it's probably the real truth should be somewhere in between, right? Maybe we should use a little less. They should use a little more. I think that that's fair, but it's fair. These patients though, I think the majority of experts would treat them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I didn't get a chance to go to ECHO. You all did. And now I feel like I have, I've learned some great pearls today. 
And thank you so much for both of my guests, Dr. Horst and Dr. Cross, for joining us for IBD Drive Time today. Stay tuned. This was segment one. We're going to learn much more about our Best of Echo series, including information on novel mechanisms, as well as information on diagnostics. So we're looking forward to those next sessions. And thanks again, Sarah and Ray. Great. Thank thanks, you. Molly.